0: Hi everybody. Today on Friday, as we conclude this week, I want to uh, go back and uh, pick up a loose end, a commonly asked question about the Holy Spirit that I neglected to address uh, when we did our week of devotions on the Holy Spirit and what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, Often the question arises when we talk about the Holy Spirit about the um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is it? Uh, is there a danger that a Christian could commit it? Uh, is it right to describe it as the unforgivable sin? And so, I want to address that from the Scriptures. There, there's one passage that speaks of this. It's really two passages, but it's a parallel between Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, <clears throat> and. Uh, in those two stories, we get this language used about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so many Christians uh, come to this passage, many people come to this passage, and when they, when they encounter it, either in Matthew's account or in Mark's, some can become very nervous, become fearful that they've committed this sin. Jesus says some pretty stark words about it, and it's couched in a section that has some other Uh, difficult pieces to it so I want to I want to pick up the context from Mark's gospel in particular Um, if we looked at a comparison and I'm not going to take the time to do this but just to point this out to you with this particular uh, parallel between Matthew and Mark this is often the case but it's relevant here for this discussion Um, Matthew's account uh, is while longer in uh, some ways it's less precise in the language that reflects what Jesus says. So it, it means the same thing, but in Matthew's account, if you're just reading Matthew by itself um, on this particular account, there's more, there's a greater ambiguity. And so the way Jesus says these things is starker and it's harder to tell exactly what he is communicating. And if you just read that account, you can draw some conclusions that are not intended by Jesus or by Matthew, the Gospel writer. And what Mark does as he's recorded this story is he actually makes it clearer what Jesus was actually saying. It means the same thing in both accounts, but in Matthew there's some ambiguities that are left in place that you you could take it one or two different ways, and in one of those ways it becomes very hard and very burdensome and the way that mark expresses it actually brings greater clarity to the nature of this particular sin and the 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 warning that jesus gives is is very sharp and precise and so i'll show you what that looks like but let's pick up some of the context this is mark chapter 3. mark chapter 3 and i actually want to pick up all the way back in verse 20 the the saying that we're looking at about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is in verses 28 through 30. Uh, And Mark explains this really well, but it's important for us to understand the context here. As always. Mark chapter 3, picking up in verse 20. Uh, So this is just after he's uh, named his 12 apostles. Verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So, uh, that picks up the context. So Jesus is ministering to people, Uh, and spending a lot of time on that so much so that in verses 20 and 21 we find out that his family is a little bit concerned about him. This is actually important to notice this is a structuring technique that we see often in Mark's gospel. It's a sandwiching kind of technique where um, he talks about a story and he talks about one piece of information and then he brings in another story in the middle And the middle part is like the main part of a sandwich. The ham and cheese, the peanut butter and jelly, whatever you like. Uh, Some of you have heard me talk about this in in, uh, sermons in the past. In fact, the first sermon I preached here, I think I talked about it, uh, in Alfred Norman Bible Church. And then he comes back around after that and comes back to the story he was talking about earlier. And so when we see that structuring going on, um, it's not that Mark is artificially put things together in a way that they didn't actually happen but what he's doing is he's drawing attention to something and it's important to remember the family piece of this that Jesus's family his mother and his siblings were concerned about him and their particular judgment is important here they went out to seize him that's very forceful language they they thought he was um, out of his mind is what Mark says they were saying Jesus So this is Mary, his mother, this is his siblings, they concluded because of his behavior that he lost his mind, that he was insane. That's their judgment, that's his family's judgment of Jesus as he's ministering to all these people and he's doing so, so selflessly that he's sacrificing his own normal needs. He is forgoing meals. He's skipping lunch. And he's not taking care of his basic needs. And so his family, out of concern, believes that he's gone crazy that he would do such a thing. And so Mark points that out. And then in the midst of this, as this crowd is gathered and Jesus has been ministering to them, verse 22 introduces the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. So notice that. That's not the scribes who were active in the synagogues in this area in Capernaum is probably when it says he went home we're probably talking about uh, actually Peter's home which became the base in Capernaum uh, eventually while he was doing ministry and um, the scribes came down from Jerusalem so these are official scribes they've heard all the way in Jerusalem about Jesus Going around and doing ministry, so this is relatively early in his ministry, but he's already gaining a reputation for becoming for being a healer and one who is teaching people, even though he's not a rabbi, and so he's drawn official attention from Jerusalem. So the scribes come down, and they listen to him, and they make a judgment call of their own, and their judgment is he is possessed by Be- beelzebul beelzebul that's actually a Hebrew name. Um, and it basically, it became in Judaism of the first century, a label for Satan. And that becomes clear as the story goes on. So literally, they, you could translate the phrase there, he has Beelzebul. And basically what they're saying is, he has a positive relationship with Satan. He's in cahoots with Satan. That's their argument. They see him doing these great things. They see him attracting a crowd. And their conclusion is... Well, he is exercising power. They can't deny that. He actually is healing people and casting out demons. And they cannot deny the reality of those things. And so they say, well, really what's going on here is that he is in cahoots with Satan. Satan is the one who's empowering him. That's their next argument there in verse 22. By the prince of demons, the ruler over the demons, he casts out the demons. Now, even just standing there, you should be thinking... Well, that's very odd. Uh, there is a logic problem, and Jesus, of course, exploits that logic problem in his parable to chastise them and correct them. And the the logic problem is if the, if Satan is the ruler of demons, so think of think of the demonic forces as a kind of army, and so Satan is the general, and you've got demons as his military fo- soldiers, the soldiers who follow him into battle. And the picture that they're painting is that then Satan takes his uh, lieutenant, so in their mind that would be Jesus, takes his lieutenant and says, you start go kicking out our own soldiers out of our army. So he and, and gives authority to his lieutenant to turn around and start kicking kick soldiers out, kicking demons out of their demonic army. That's the picture. That seems ludicrous. No good general would do that. No general who wants to win would do that. And so there's an absolute, plain logic argument, uh, logic problem in their argument and in their assessment. And Jesus then, of course, exploits that. And so he calls them, even the scribes, and so he's directing this to them, but the crowds are still there listening to this. And he chastises them. Mark says this is parable language. So what he's about to say is couched in terms of a parable or a set of parables. And basically what Mark means is the teaching that we're about to read deals in comparative language, it deals in figures of speech, it deals in um, uh, he's not speaking literally he is speaking figuratively to make certain points and so we have to kind of get into what exactly is the picture that Jesus is painting and what is the point that he's trying to draw out Uh, and so he raises the question initially just the rhetorical question how can satan cast out satan? He's asking, he's pointing up the ludicrousness of their logic. If it, and then he gives the illustration in verse 24 of a kingdom at, in civil war. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it won't stand. It can't stand. It, it implodes internally and falls apart. Same thing if a house or a family it has got internal division. And that's something that we need to see here. Because a house is not talking about bricks and mortar, Uh, A building that you live in, a structure. He's talking about a household, a family. And that's important to remember because at verse 20, his family is standing there listening to this too. And they've just made the assessment that Jesus is out of his mind. And now the scribes come down from Jerusalem and they have a different assessment. He's not only insane, but he's actually possessed by Satan. He's empowered by Satan. That's his problem. And so a household that's divided, that's at conflict within itself, which is what you see there. Jesus is in conflict with his own family. And so there's a problem with that. And so he's challenging that idea implicitly here. So he he addresses a kingdom divided against itself, and he's talking parabolically here. This is a, a parable of sorts. And if a house or a family is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And again this has relevance to his own household, his own family, his mother, his siblings, and he's basically pointing out there's a fundamental conflict between among us because at this point, even Mary, who knows more about Jesus probably than all the others do given that she's lived with him and given that she had those angelic revelations uh, in, in conjunction with his conception and his birth, but she is not a believer at this point. She's a follower of Jesus, yes, but she doesn't have, just like the disciples, even though they are with him and they've been following him and he just named them his apostles, they're not uh, believers in the same sense that we are after the day of Pentecost. We talked about this with, with respect to the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Before that point, they were followers of Jesus, but they were believers in an Old Testament sense. But now that Jesus is here and he's preaching the coming of the kingdom, that has to change. And the nature of their allegiance to Jesus has to change. And Mary and his siblings especially, because we find out in John's gospel explicitly that during his ministry his siblings did not believe in him at all. Uh, Mary is better his mother is better in that regard she did of course believe in him and she was a follower she wasn't antagonistic but she's caught up at this moment early in his ministry in a wrong perspective and drawing a wrong conclusion about who he is and what he needs to be doing at this point point. and her concern is misplaced and he's actually addressing that here we need to remember that in the background so then he pulls the so he's given these images a, a kingdom or a nation at civil war a household that's got inner internal conflict and that he says it won't be able to stand there will be failure and brokenness in that family if that conflict is not addressed and the harmony is not pursued and so he pulls and then he pushes the point in verse 26 if Satan is risen up against himself like you scribes say is the case here and is divided he cannot stand but is coming to an end now at this point Jesus does something really interesting he he steps he, he He develops the parable in a particular direction so that he's able to make two points. He is not only correcting the stupid logic of the scribes, and uh, three points, he's correcting the stupid logic of the scribes, and what we're going to see is he's also warning his family. They're not as extreme in their assessment of Jesus as the scribes are, but they're thinking in the same kind of logic at this point, his siblings and his mother are thinking he's insane. The scribes are accusing him of being demon-possessed, and there's actually a similar assessment there. They're on the wrong track, uh, and they're both going in the wrong direction. So he's, he's correcting the scribes. He's warning his family. But the third thing he's doing is he's making a theological statement about his ministry and what's really happening. So he's not just saying, this is what's not happening. So the scribes say, So the, his family says, you're out of your mind. The scribes say, you're possessed by the devil. And Jesus says, no, neither of those things is true. But then he goes one step further and he wants to say, this is what's really happening in terms of Satan and his kingdom and his authority. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, which is not the case, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. And so at this point, Jesus is transitioning to make a new point about what he really is doing. And so when he says he is coming to an end, at one level, Jesus is being very clever in his rhetoric. At one level, he's just affirming the reality that that's not the case. That Satan is not fighting against himself by empowering Jesus to cast out demons. That would be dumb and ludicrous and not a very good strategy for a military leader. And so, if he did that, he would be destroying himself. But when Jesus makes this statement that he is coming to an end, he's actually saying... That actually is happening, but it's happening for a different reason. And so he's making a dual statement here. He's saying he's not coming to an end because of internal strife within the kingdom of Satan. But he is coming coming to an end because of what he says in verse 27. And again, he's speaking in a parabolic way. So he uses another illustration of a home and a home break-in. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. So... He's saying and just to interpret the parable for us. Jesus doesn't do that, so I'm 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 reading this and saying I think the parable is straightforward enough that the images are clear enough, and what the way Jesus is tying these things together, you can see this on the surface. So it, it doesn't require a further explanation by Jesus at this point. So the strong man in the illustration is Satan. His House is the kingdom of this world. Satan is the ruler of this world, according to Jesus. In John's Gospel, three times he gets that title from Jesus' lips. And so, uh, he is the ruler of this world, and his goods are people who are still under his power. People who are still under his power. Which is everybody on the face of the planet who is not a follower of Jesus. That's the reality that we face here. So no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his, plunder his goods. So plundering his goods would mean rescuing the people from satanic oppression. Unless, unless, and so here he's in this parable, he says there is one way that that could happen. Satan's the strong man, his household is this world, and his goods are the people who are still under his power and influence. Unless, what has to happen? he, Anyone who wants to come into that house must first bind the strong man. And so in the parable, he's saying, if you want to rob Satan's house, you've got to tie Satan up so that he can't interfere and he can't stop you. And then he says, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, again, Jesus doesn't interpret this, but what... Remember the issue on the table. Jesus has been casting out demons from people. What, what does that mean? Well, that means he's setting people free from slavery to Satan, from demonic possession. He is setting captives free. And so, how does he do that? Well, that means that he has come into this world, Satan's house, he has broken in, and he's, he has invaded the enemy territory. That's what this world is. It is enemy territory for God because it's in rebellion against him since Genesis 3. Satan is the ruler of this world. He has taken authority as Adam and Eve gave it to him when they rebelled following him, submitting to the serpent and the, the Satan that empowered and possessed that snake. And so by doing that, Jesus then comes into the world Right? He he is the Son of God, the eternal son of God. And so he comes from above and he breaks into this world and he is plundering the goods. He is robbing Satan blind by casting demons out of people. And so the reality that he's saying, so what's really happening is that I have come have broken into Satan's territory. I have overpowered Satan. And I have set him to the side so that when I want to rescue a captive, he cannot oppose me. He cannot overpower me. I overpower him. That's the point. This is not a literal statement about the binding of Satan. Some people draw that connection to Revelation 20 with what happens at the outset of the millennium when Jesus returns. And some people uh, have the belief that this is actually that reality so that the millennium is something that's going on right now. That's not my understanding of revelation 20 or this passage instead in the parable the image is tying up a man who owns a house that's the image the meaning of that image the reality that that's describing is the the fact that satan that that Jesus has greater power than satan that satan cannot cannot hinder Jesus from taking from rescuing people from satan's grip he can't overpower Jesus. That's the point of the parable. And so the binding imagery is part of the parable. It's not to be then transferred literally to say that Jesus during his ministry or now during this age has bound Satan the way that he literally will in the millennium, at the outset of the millennium and for the duration of the millennium in Revelation 20. And so here the image is simply to say Jesus has broken into Satan's kingdom, nullified his power to such a degree that he cannot hold his captives. Jesus is here casting out demons right and left. And when we get stories in the Gospels about how that happens, it's simply Jesus says, leave, essentially. And they go. And that's what so many of the people are impressed with. uh, Because he speaks and they obey him because he has that greater power and they cannot resist him, they cannot stand up to him, they cannot oppose him and neither can their leader, Satan. So that's the truth of what's happening. That goes against the assessment of the scribes and that also goes against the assessment of his own family. Now that's where we come to finally this question about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus brings this up next in verse 28. Why does he bring this up right here in this context? That's the interesting question. So he puts it... Exclamation point on this whole reality in verse 28. Truly I say to you, so he's drawing his his epic conclusion right here in his engagement with the scribes directly. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now we should all stop there and we should put the weight and the emphasis on that statement. The controversial nature of the the language of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and whether it's an unforgivable sin is a question that has distracted us from the main point of what Jesus says here. We should marvel at the wondrous grace and the wondrous mercy that's expressed in these words. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, do you, you see the expansiveness, the universal nature of this promise and this offer of forgiveness? No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, Jesus here is saying, all of that may be forgiven. All of it will be forgiven for those who trust in Him. All of it. There's a wondrous grace here that we shouldn't minimize or get distracted from because of the debated question about the exception that he seems to lay down in the next verse. This all sins, whatever blasphemies they utter, will be forgiven. That is a glorious promise. And we shouldn't miss it. There is a but. Verse 29. But... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. Now notice the way Mark puts this. This is the reason that I draw our attention to Mark's account. Because Mark does two things for us. He he says this in in a very specific and expansive way. Describing the consequences of this uh, sin. And then in verse 30, he tells us what it means. Matthew does not tell us what blasphemy against the Spirit might be. Mark specifies exactly what it is and why it's relevant in this passage and in this event, in this encounter that Jesus had with these people. Verse 29 then says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, what is an eternal sin? Well, simply put, it is a sin that goes on forever. It is an eternal sin. It lasts forever. This is, so what, it, what this doesn't refer to, then, is simply a statement in a moment. That's what causes, I think, that's what causes many Christians to fear at this point. To wonder, have I accidentally done this? Because blasphemy refers to something that you say. Blasphemy is simply a word that means to speak poorly of someone or something. That's all the word blaspheme or blasphemy means. Is to speak poorly of someone. To speak uh, in a harmful way about someone. And to speak falsely about someone even. But blaspheming just means to speak poorly. To speak Wickedly of someone to speak deceptively about someone—that all falls under the category of blasphemy. And when you say it like that, it sure—it sound, sounds like this generic category that maybe I could have. Did, did I, do I really represent God accurately when I talk about Him all the time? Could I? Could I accidentally, or could I? I, I don't really know my Bible well enough that I'm. I, I. I've said God is like this, but He's really not. Is that blasphemy? Well, it might be. It might be. But is it unforgivable? So, I don't like the word unforgivable because I don't think it reflects what Jesus actually says in either Matthew or Mark's account. It does not say that this sin is unforgivable. That would mean that it is a sin that cannot be forgiven. Right? That's what unforgivable means, is that it is unable to be forgiven. Well, that suggests to me, when I hear that, that suggests that God is unable to forgive that sin. And I never want to say that. And I don't think the Bible ever says that. That there is a sin that God is unable to forgive. I don't think that's a, a right way of talking about God, that He has this inability for, to forgive. <laughs> the Bible the is so... So repetitive and so emphatic on God's power to forgive and his willingness and desire and intent to forgive. And again, the promise is right here. All sins, whatever blasphemies. So all sins of all kinds and particularly the sins of our word. And so the commitment is there to... Free. And so what it, doesn't, it doesn't say he, this sin is incapable of being forgiven. It says that the person who does this, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness. So it's not saying it cannot be forgiven. It's saying the case that he's talking about is one that never receives forgiveness. And then he explains what he means because it's an eternal sin, meaning it's a sin that keeps on going. So this is not about what comes out of your mouth, only. He is drawing his arrow directly at the scribes. And Mark makes that exactly clear in verse 30. Why does Jesus even say this? Verse 30. For, because, so Mark adds this comment, because he recognizes, I think, that Matthew's account could have been misunderstood. Or if he didn't say this line, if he just left Jesus' words hanging there, that his readers could misunderstand what he intended. And so Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given us an explanation that Matthew did not. For they were saying, the scribes were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, essentially, according to this, is what the scribes were doing. And so when Jesus says this, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, he's making an accusation against the scribes. He's saying, you guys have done this. You guys have done this. But again, remember that his family is listening to all of this and they have come to a similar conclusion not the same conclusion but a similar conclusion that jesus is out of his mind so this statement about blasphemy against the holy spirit is to condemn the scribes for what they've already done but it is also a warning to his family to his mother mary and his siblings it's a warning to them that they are thinking along the same lines as the scribes and they are in danger of crossing a line in their perspective on Jesus and their assessment of his work. Because that's what this is really about. They say, they look at Jesus casting demons out of people. They see Jesus setting people free from demonic oppression. They see Jesus working miracles of power and they look at that and they say, that's the work of the devil. So they see what is truly good. Truly empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus worked his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they see that, and they don't assess it. They don't evaluate it as coming from God. Instead, they evaluate it, they assess it as being absolute evil. And so their perspective on Jesus is so twisted, so distorted... That they see what is rightly good, rightly called good, and they call it evil, the worst evil, in fact. That is what it means to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. That's why it's against the Holy Spirit in particular. It's to look at the work that is genuinely produced by the Holy Spirit in someone's life, and to look at that and say, the devil did that. That work is evil. So to see the work of the Spirit in a person's life, and to look at that and say, that is evil, that is the work of the devil, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But that by itself is not what Jesus is addressing. That is simply the outflow that comes out of the mouth that reflects a heart that is so dead and hardened against Jesus that that is the permanent fixed posture of that person. And so, as long as that posture remains, that person never has forgiveness. God will not forgive that person as long as they remain with that perspective. So, even here, there is hope. There is hope. God has the power to change a person's perspective. The Apostle Paul is a case in point. I think... The Apostle Paul was absolutely guilty of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. But God changed him because he did this. He looked at the work of the Spirit in the church and he tried to kill it because he thought it was evil. But God intervened and changed his perspective, changed his heart. Opened his eyes so that he could truly see the good that God was doing in the church. And so even here, this is not a statement of some hopelessness. We should never, never look at somebody else, or even look at ourselves for that matter, and say that that person is beyond salvation, beyond the possibility of salvation, because of what they've said, because of their posture, even if they are opponents of the gospel even if they are enemies of the gospel even if they are persecutors of the church like Saul was. That does not put them outside the ability of God to break in and change their perspective. But Jesus is here saying that that perspective is the perspective that will last forever for those who reject Jesus. That's essentially what's going on. If we want to put it in much simpler terms The reality is this is a person who rejects Jesus and who keeps on rejecting him. So this blasphemy is not a singular momentary event. It is a posture of life that continues. So It's not just about what you say. That becomes the manifestation of a heart that is against God and is so broken and twisted that they can't see and assess rightly the good work of the Holy Spirit in the world and in a person's life. And so as long as that goes on, they don't have forgiveness. That's kind of a simple way to put it. But that's the reality that we're dealing with here. And the reality is for those who end up condemned by God on Judgment Day, they will continue in blaspheming the Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever and ever. They will, as long as they exist in hell, even after Judgment Day, they will continue in their rebellion against God. Sin is not something that just stops when you die for a sinner. For someone who rejects Jesus, that rejection and that hostility toward God will continue forever. It will be an eternal sin. A sin that lasts forever. So what we see in the next passage is again his mother and his brothers coming. And other people notify Jesus that his mother and his siblings were outside And Jesus doesn't acknowledge them as his family. He says, those who are in here, who are listening to me, who are following me, these are my true family. And so at this point, early in Jesus' ministry, Mary, his mother, and his siblings are still on the outside. Mary came inside much more quickly than his siblings did, I think. But, at this point, they are still on the outside, and Jesus is very much warning them about their posture and their assessment of him. You could look in John, uh, John's Gospel, in John 10:20, where you could see that people's assessment of Jesus, um, that many many had drawn the conclusion that he was either out of his mind or demon possessed, and in John 10:20, those are linked, and so you can see here that his siblings, his family, his mother's assessment of him being crazy, insane, out of his mind, is connected to the scribes' assessment that he is demon-possessed. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's in the same line of thinking. And Jesus here is warning them about the danger of that reality. So. If you're concerned about, have you committed this sin? That's, as most people, most pastors would say, that's a good indicator that you haven't. Because this, again, describes someone so as, who is so hardened in their perspective that when they see what is truly good, the work of the, the obvious work of the Holy Spirit, even in, in, the, in terms of miracles and setting people free from demonic oppression, and you say, that is evil and the work of the devil you are committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You are assessing the Spirit's work as evil, the Spirit's good work as evil. Um, and you're in danger of setting yourself in a posture that could last forever and will be rejected. But that doesn't mean you're beyond hope or that doesn't mean that uh, that person is beyond hope. Remember the Apostle Paul. Pray with me. Father thanks for these words and this warning we should be very careful about how we assess and evaluate what we see you doing in the world we should use your word as a guide and a lens to help us a grid for interpreting and evaluating what we see Uh, we we sometimes our perspectives are limited our perspectives are broken by sin colored by bias and we don't always we don't often even have the full picture and so we should be very careful about our assessments Um, and we should recognize uh, as your children your good work in our lives and in the world around us and celebrate it and rejoice in it even when it doesn't look like what we thought it would be so thank you for these words thank you for the picture of Paul who was a blasphemer he calls himself that in one of his letters he was a blasphemer he was a persecutor of the the church he was an enemy of the gospel but you intervened in his life and rescued him from that evil rescued him from that blasphemy rescued him from that sin and let us never think that anyone still breathing is beyond your power to do the same thing that you did for him We pray that you would do that for those that we see around us, in our families, in our nation, in our communities, even in our church, who are wearing a mask and pretending to be what they are not. Would you break in and set people free from their slavery? Thank you that your son has greater power than Satan. Thank you that he has broken into this world and achieved the ultimate victory over Satan and all of his power has been broken over us. Thank you for rescuing us so completely. We look forward to the final day when we will be set free from broken bodies and a world that is corrupt and that still has the mark of the devil upon it. We pray, Father, that you would send your son to wrap these things up, wrap up history, resurrect those who've gone before and mm-hmm. transform those who are living so that we might experience the fullness of all that you've promised and all that you've provided in your Son. It's in His name that we pray.